Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 34, The Founding of Rhode Island. Remember that this podcast is listener-supported. If you'd like to support the show, then please consider signing up for membership. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. It only costs you $4.99 per month, and gives you access to exclusive premium content, such as our series on the Aztecs. Special thanks to our newest pioneer, listener John. Thanks, I couldn't do this show without you. So far, we've set up four of the New England colonies. Plymouth, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. But as the Puritan migration continued throughout the 1630s and the population swelled, several more would be set up. This is why, today, we turn towards Rhode Island. Rhode Island is a curiosity. I'm not going to play favourites with states throughout this history, but there is something special about Rhode Island. It is the smallest state, only 1,214 square miles, 48 miles north to south, and 37 miles east to west. For comparison, this is over 600 times smaller than the largest state, Alaska. It also has a rather unique and radical history. It was the first of the 13 colonies to go into open rebellion against England, and also the last to ratify the Constitution. I've said previously that you can see states gaining their character from very early in their history. It will not take you very long to work out how Rhode Island came to have this attitude. To do that, we need to look at its founder, Roger Williams. Williams was born in London, we're not sure on the exact date, but 1603 is the most likely. He was not born to a wealthy family, he was not part of the gentry, like Winthrop, but the son of a shopkeeper. He was a bright mind from an early age, but his family was unable to fund an education. Luckily for Williams, he managed to find a patron, Sir Edward Coke, a commentator on English law. He studied divinity at Cambridge, and then became a chaplain for Sir William Masham. He fell in love with one of Masham's daughters, who rejected his marriage proposal, but eventually he married one of the maids in 1629. I'm sure you're already expecting what comes next. He was a bright young mind around Cambridge, so naturally his attention was captured by Puritanism. He took to it very passionately, and was critical of High Anglicanism with its common book of prayer. This earned Williams the displeasure of William Lord, and he fled to Massachusetts, arriving in 1631. Once he had arrived in the New World, we are able to get a better perspective of the type of Puritan Williams was. Importantly, both for Williams and the future of the United States, he had a rather different perspective 
than did Governor John Winthrop. Winthrop, you'll recall, didn't want to completely abandon the Church of England. He recognised that there were problems with it, but he wanted to fix the church from within, rather than replace it. This was in stark contrast to the separatist pilgrims in Plymouth. Williams was a separatist too, and this was going to cause some issues. For instance, when he arrived, he was offered the position of minister at Boston, but Williams refused on the grounds that the Boston church wouldn't separate completely with the Church of England. He was then offered the ministry at Salem. Williams accepted this time, but it also wasn't to be. Winthrop, who had greater power and prestige than anyone else in the colony, put pressure on Salem to withdraw the offer. They complied. It wasn't anything personal. Winthrop liked Williams. Indeed, you might even say he admired him. He was another bright figure, and Winthrop had to appreciate that. But he was disruptive. He was trying to build a unified religious establishment in the colony, and Williams, for all his promise, was an unwanted disruption. Williams was greatly discouraged by this and decided to leave Massachusetts. He would settle with his fellow separatists in Plymouth in 1631. This didn't go particularly well. I've often said that the Pilgrims were the extreme fringe of Puritanism, and this led them to have some very fringe ideas at the time. One of them was tolerance, and Williams had some problems with their particular brand of it. He assisted the minister there, but he was uneasy with how relaxed the atmosphere was. The pilgrims were very strict themselves, but didn't enforce their strictness upon others. So, when people returned to England, they didn't particularly mind if they chose to go worship in the Church of England. It was their right to do so. Williams couldn't abide by an impure strain, and so he left in 1633 and headed back to Salem. They didn't offer him the position of minister outright, not wanting to provoke a reaction from Winthrop, but he was allowed to work as an assistant to the minister. This simply couldn't work. It just wasn't going to last. His extremism had forced him out once, and he wasn't going to be quiet and get on with what was happening in Massachusetts, as no doubt the senior figures in the colony would have liked. Instead, Williams started making these senior figures rather uncomfortable, by saying things they really wished he wouldn't. He mentioned that he thought the colony wasn't technically legal, Considering how the company got its patents, and the issues of other patents, which would mean that the colony ended up in open rebellion, technically, for the better part of half a century, they weren't exactly happy about this. But what is really interesting, to me at least, is why Williams thought the patent was illegal. His point was that the patent was invalid because the King of England had no authority to grant the Charter. 
the land belongs to the Native Americans, not him. He was not authorised to give them away. How busy an idea is that? They managed to get him to quiet down, but he would not stay that way. In November 1634, he started mentioning these issues again, and actually suggested that the charter should be sent back to England to be answered. And, if his issues were not legally resolved, that they should all return to England. Eventually, he was persuaded to stop talking about this in public, but this was just one of the many ideas that Williams had, and most of them were not very popular. Purity is a reoccurring theme in many of the ideas that Williams had. For instance, he believed that non-freemen should not be given the Oath of Allegiance. This is because he considered the oath to be a form of worship, and therefore if an official gave the Oath of Allegiance to a non-freeman, he would be worshipping with a wicked person who was, by not being part of the church, taking the Lord's name in vain. He opposed the laws enforcing church attendance and the church tax, seeing them both as unnecessary interference in church affairs by the state. He was opposed by the elders and magistrates, who started once again encouraging Salem to force him out. But they didn't. Instead, in April 1635, they elected him pastor. 1635 was a very eventful year for Williams, as the general court called him to Boston to explain himself and force him to relent his claims that the state had no rights to interfere with the church. At this particular moment, Salem made a request to the general court in order to confirm their ownership of certain lands around Cape Ann. The court saw this as an opportunity. They denied Salem's request, and instead hinted that if they removed Williams, then they could review the case. Williams was, as you might expect, outraged. He called upon all the churches of Massachusetts to condemn the general court. They didn't. He then accused these churches of impurity, and called for the Church of Salem to separate itself completely, but it didn't. This was a step too far for the general court, and in October 1635, they put him on trial. He was found guilty and sentenced to six weeks' banishment. He was destabilising the colony, but it was awesome and he was in ill health, so he was allowed to stay, as long as he kept quiet. Ha! Some people just never learn. He returned to Salem to find his church divided, but he would promise. He, instead, resigned. You'd think this would help him avoid trouble, but no. He held meetings with his friends, and preached to them, and continued to criticise the administration of the colony. This was the final straw for the magistrates. They decided to arrest him, but Williams was warned in advance of this by Winthrop, and he had time to make his escape. In January 1635, he fled overland to Narragansett Bay, which lay just outside of Massachusetts. He lived for a while with the Indians before moving onwards. 
It was here that he would be joined by those who sympathised with his cause. It was here that he set up Providence Plantation, which is still the capital of Rhode Island. I'm quite sure he didn't intend that this would happen, as he set up his house and the foundations for a town. In many ways, it was exactly like a typical New England township. The heads of all the families would come together to run the town. However, there were a few differences which reflected Williams's altercation with the Massachusetts church. It was more democratic than Massachusetts. Williams was deeply uncomfortable with the system of power in the churches, which, rather than giving authority to the congregation, it centred power instead with a small group of pastors. To Williams, this wasn't Puritanism, but rather Presbyterianism. Massachusetts was, to use the terminology of Ron Swanson, something of a religious oligarchy. I personally find oligarchic theocracy a more pleasing phrase, but then I'm not director of Pawnee Parks and Recreation Department, so what do I know? Williams was deeply opposed to the power that these pastors had acquired over the whole colony for two distinct reasons. The first of these was that he felt religion was a private personal matter, and he read the state forcing its way into religious affairs. Church and state should be separated, not fused, as had happened in Massachusetts. The second was that he felt it violated the concept of sovereignty deriving from the people. On the face, it sounds very democratic, but it wasn't. Williams did not believe that every person automatically votes. He, like many at the time, viewed the state as something like a corporation. A corporation shouldn't be dominated by the men at the top, like was happening in Massachusetts. But likewise, it shouldn't be run by just everybody. What rights did some random person have to interfere in the running of the company? The only people who had a stake in the company were the owners, the shareholders, and the freemen. They were the people who had the right to govern. Every shareholder in the company had one vote, as much say as any other shareholder. This right was not extended to the wider population of the colony. This gave power to a minority of the male population, not to mention the complete exclusion of women. This was the extent of Williams's democratic leanings. There was very little actual government at Providence. There was a compact which they would, quote, from time to time subject ourselves in active and passive obedience to all such orders and agreements as shall be made by the major consent of the present inhabitants and others whom they shall hereafter admit till then only in civil things, end quote. This is sort of similar to the Mayflower Compact, except it was clear that the scope of the government here was quite limited. But still, what was created here was very radical. It has been said that what Williams created 
was the most enlightened political institution in the world at this time. It was a free, secular republic. While it was a republic, Williams was the heart of the plantation. He owned the land, and by 1637 was one of the most powerful men in New England. He had a trade with the Indians and the Dutch at New Amsterdam. Williams didn't personally like politics and had no real preference other than tolerance, which strikes me as odd when you think about how hard he fought to separate himself from the Church of England. In 1638, he deeded his land to 13 associates. He was one of them. In 1640, it adopted something called the Twelve Articles, which said they would all be ruled by the 1636 Compact and governed by a group of five, called the Disposers, and an assembly made up of the heads of the families who owned land. This is where we shall leave things for this week. There is a bit more to the story, but it would make the episode too long if I included it here. I need to talk about how Providence became Rhode Island, by fusing with a few other settlements which popped up. Warwick, founded by Samuel Gorton, Newport, founded by William Coddington, and Portsmouth, founded by Anne Hutchinson. I'm particularly excited about that one, considering that the only woman I've been able to talk about in any detail so far is Pocahontas, and that is rather ridiculous. After that, we'll turn towards Connecticut. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember to visit us online. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. You can continue the conversation on social media by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and you can follow me on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. You can also send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.